Talking Around podcast. I'm John Cronshaw. And I'm Russell Evans. Last week, I gave Russ the homework to begin outlining his first novella. How are you getting on with that? Um, I've decided to spend a week basically just brainstorming, essentially, just allowing these ideas in my head to to naturally grow. And then you can sort of help me, maybe condense it a bit, crystallise it. Mm, other words that mean make it better or realer. Um, but my vocabulistics are real good, you see. Um, this is why you want to be a writer, yeah? Yeah, obviously, so that I can tell people things with words and stuff. The way I'd imagined it was it's sort of like a soft intro to the world because the reader is still not getting a lot of explanation. It's still largely you're getting to experience sort of mm, the wonder and the... The, the bizarre nature of things, but you're still getting to ponder about it. It would essentially run that, you know, you've got your prologue, which I've, I've kind of obviously written out in rough and such. Um, and then once once that's happened and she's, shall we say, moved on, she would then appear in the underworld. The sort of conceit, if I think that's the right word I'd, I'd come up with, was that Inigo, part of his job or part of what he's asked for his role to do, like that not many people ask to do, is to essentially do tours of duty outside of the city looking for stragglers, looking for people who have sort of been remade but need to be sort of found and brought back to the city. So is there going to be a story in this or is this just going to be exposition basically because that's what it's sounded like to me so far is that you love your world and you just want to show it off yeah i think it's 50 50 because i'd had this idea that there are kind of nomad groups that live outside the city as well and have essentially rejected city life you know the counterculture that always exists to the norm and so they sort of live this raggedy existence outside uh, it's a bit mad max part of the reason why this job that inigo does exists is to try and stop the more should we say amoral of these groups from basically just finding people and using them to their own ends i'm imagining things like bandit kings and road warrior warlords and huge mishmash of that kind of stuff so my initial idea would have been that dora would spend a night or so with the caravan, which is sort of the name of the group that Inigo would lead to sort of go outside the city. And then she would maybe have a freak out or she'd reject it. And she'd be like, no, 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 this is all still a dream. I'm still dreaming. I've got complete control of this. Or, you know what I mean? I, I don't believe it. I don't think it's real. I'm rejecting this and I'm, I'm just going to walk off. I'm not going to buy into this because I don't trust it. still feel like I'm dreaming, which is going to be part of a problem in terms of how she transitioned over into this world because it's not like... She was aware of how she died. So she basically went from one dream state to what essentially equates to another kind of dream state. I'm not letting the dream control me. I'm not taking your advice. I'm not doing what you're saying. I'm going to go. And so she does go, and then she gets picked up by another one of these groups. Through that, she learns a bit more about the world. I wouldn't want a huge expedition dump at the beginning. Expedition? (laughs) Um like I said, my vocabulistics are real good. Like it would more be like a short little adventure where the hero, the protagonist, finds out that actually they are wrong. That they actually better start accepting that this is the way the world is, yeah. um, and learning how to function within it. It's almost like a Princess Leia, Jabba the Hutt type situation, except I'm not going to be putting her in a gold bikini or anything like that. It's more of a well, you're mine now, like some nomad king conscriptor or something yeah. like that. If she stays with this warlord or whatever it is, then it's going to be devastating for her and there needs to be a real reason for her to get away 
So I'm just kind of thinking about this in terms of save the cat structure. Unless you've got more to add to this, I'm thinking that this bit now could make either an opening first act or it could be a novella. Mm. What you'd need is almost the realisation by the end of this that it's not a dream. So that can be the learning arc of the story and the thing of her knowing who to trust. This could almost be structured in a bit of a hero's journey thing where Inago comes to her with the call to adventure and says, look, you need to come with me to the city. You need to become a ferryman and fulfil your destiny or whatever it is. Yeah. She'll refuse and go off into the forest to kind of seek her own quest. So that would be Act 2, which is in the Save the Cats thing. This would be the fun and games bit. This would be the promise of the premise where she is moving in with these warlords and things but then by the midpoint she realizes that oh my goodness these warlords are terrible if i don't do something yeah i don't kind of take control and get away and actually this inago guy was right and that'd be a midpoint kind of flip and in act three you know the bit after the midpoint bad guys closing and all is lost so you'd need to have something really bad happened to Dora when she tries to escape. Maybe it seems like actually she's going to be now killed or sacrificed or something. And then in the final act, she'll escape. She'll realise stuff's real and she'll find an ego or something like that. But she's got to do this kind of by herself and have this realisation. My idea was that it's like everything that's metaphorical that we talk about, how people affect other people, becomes very real in this world. So let's say she ends up being taken in by one of these nomad kings, and at first it all seems very benign. It's like, no, we have chosen to live this life outside the city and not prescribe to their ideas and their beliefs, and we've got our own ideas about what this world is. But the leader... has such a strong personality that by just virtue of that, he essentially enslaves people. Hmm. And the more people he enslaves, it kind of becomes not so much a hive mind, but it's almost like if we, if we were to say that someone's opinion in this world has a power level, shall we even say, to make it a little bit anime. So, you know, the average person, you know, let's say they've got an opinion power level of three. And then you'll have those who are more informed or in higher levels of position and it goes up and up and up. But you can also, like, augment your own opinion by having other people agree with you. And, it, and it's more than just metaphorical. It creates a, a persuasive force. It, it denotes reality and starts to sort of essentially... Um, in the minds of those who experience this opinion, it starts to just go, you know, this is correct. It's like saying that up is, you know, that up is up and down is down. You can't disagree with that, if you know what I mean. And so when people's opinions are backed up on large, before that, there's a sort of, somewhat hard to accept as opinions and easier to accept as facts and the trap will be that Dora will become a part of this group and at first it won't seem awful because it'll seem like everybody gets on and everybody agrees and they've got synergy and it's actually quite nice but soon she'll start to realize that everybody just constantly echoes what the leader says and sometimes almost completely verbatim and so she starts to become suspect of it and this is where the conflict and the fun and games and everything starts to begin and in the end i would have inigo turn up to help her and in doing this inigo would be it would almost seem over the top because he would just turn up and if needs be slaughter these people do you know what a deus ex machina is i do indeed so you don't want inigo to be a deus ex machina yeah 
this is what foreshadowing's for. So you can foreshadow this early on. He maybe dropped something like, you can trust me and I'll prove it or something like that. Yeah. But you can foreshadow that, but you don't just want Inego appearing like the cavalry at the end. It wouldn't be super contrived. There would definitely be a means by which Inego would be like, well, I've been looking for you and I've been, you know, it's it's not just a simple matter of he's going to turn up and like, I'm here to solve your problems. Yeah. Um, it would actually, him turning up... It wouldn't really be about the fact that she would eventually need rescuing. I feel that she, as a character, and by ne- by uh, dint of what's happened to her in the dream, she has abilities and resistances that most people don't, and that she would have been actually okay. But it's more him turning up is not so much about him rescuing her, but it's also an attempt to show the reader that, like, I don't know, what morality is like in this world, and that. Like this, what this nomad is doing is essentially is slavery and is seen as um, one of the most amoral things you can do because you are literally wiping people's minds. You're not just physically enslaving them, but you are taking away the vital essence that makes them them. And they are just becoming batteries for your opinion. And that is seen as like a huge, huge crime. And so the idea is, is that Inigo would turn up, but I believe, I think that like Dora would be most of the way through rescuing herself anyway. When Inigo turned up, it wouldn't be so much to be riding like a white knight. It, w- it would be to like, well, I'm actually just doing my job here as well. And then it would, you'd get to see the sort of the swift and somewhat black and white judgment. You know, you'd spend the first, you know, a few pages of the book within a go thinking like oh he's really nice cool laid-back guy who's going to help dora out but then you also see him doing his job which sort of will give you another side to him which is not this nice laid-back sort of friendly paternal guy who's but he's also like basically a cold efficient ferryman doing his job to the absolute letter i would say with this then you know you want him there for the first 25 percent yeah and then the next 50 percent you almost want him absent yep maybe having the people who are part of this tribe or whatever talk about Inego. So you're always remembering him. You're not like... He's kind of like the boogeyman in the yeah. in, uh, in the wildlands sort of thing, yeah. Again, you know, going back to Save the Cat, the midpoint, you have almost like a public thing where the truth is revealed to her in some way. She has a big realisation, public shaming of some kind or... Yeah, something that reveals the sort of the, the deeper philosophy that informs something and then the main character realises that it's probably morally bankrupt or that, you know, that superficially everything seems to be fine and that it works, but deep down something is, is very wrong. In the Save the Cat thing, this is like the false defeat or false victory kind of thing. I was actually reading Save the Cat again last night just to kind of uh, go, you know, because it is really helpful and I'm kind of thinking about my current work in progress and... He uses the example of, like, Legally Blonde, yeah. where the girl turns up at what's meant to be, like, you know, a bit of a costume party, and she turns up in bunny ears and all this, and she's, like, publicly shamed, and then her boyfriend goes, I don't like you, Harvard doesn't like you. This happens again and again. The person assumes that she's this, and then it flips and it isn't, and by doing that, the truth is revealed, and then new ideas can come. And if you're going to do this one, I would do the mapping of it to Save the Cat, Think of your midpoint. Think of your fun and games. Like with the fun and games stuff, you can learn about the world, but have a a mini subplot that okay, we need to get X or Y. We need to get the golden fleece or you know something little or whatever. Mm. Um, so you can learn about the world. Like because you're doing a novella, you'd have twenty scenes, say each of around a thousand words. 
and in that way you get you know a twenty thousand word novella, which is a nice amount for a novella. So first scene would be, I don't know, Dora waking up in this new place, and then almost work backwards if you can. So you've got your opening image, you know what that's going to be. She's waking up in this strange place, and then write what is going to be in your last scene, which is it's almost like the flip, isn't it? So we we talk about the opening image and the closing image. In Save the Cat is the example, I think it's of Sleepless in Seattle, where in the beginning the guy is burying his mother, and yeah. he's literally underground, at the deepest depths, full of mourning. He'll never be able to love and all this, and then. The final scene is him literally on the top of the world. He's on the top of the Empire State Building. He's love and all this. So the opening image is her, what, lost and alone. And then the closing image almost needs to be a flip of that Mm. to show that kind of progression and change. And I think having the Inago character going, right, we're going into this other world. We're going into the city. Do you know what I mean? You've almost got a hook then for your next book. Wow, there's a bigger world. You know, this is just the... I'm just on the outskirts of some good, so... Yeah, yeah, that's, I really like that idea, sort of just the idea of, like, the, the reveal of a much wider world. I always love it when they do that in, like, ongoing series. Yeah, so I think of computer games like Oblivion or Fallout 3, where you're literally starting in this underground world, and you're there, and you're going through it, and, you know, you, you spend about an hour in the vault or in the dungeon before you actually see the real world, and it's just, like, it's massive, especially in Fallout 3, where the main character didn't know any world beyond the vault. They live there their entire life and don't know anything else. And it's like the Plato's cave thing of... Yeah, the shadows, yeah. Yeah, so you only know a little bit of the world in a weird way. And then all of a sudden, what you are at is just a tiny little piece and the world's yeah. much bigger and much more complicated than you initially thought. As much as a storytelling mechanic as that is, that's a gameplay mechanic insofar as it's almost tutorialising something. And that... I feel can cross over into books as well. Obviously it's not yeah. it's not quite tutorializing, but it's like here is a this is me getting you you used to a part of this world. Yeah. Um starting to lay the groundwork for you so that it and it's not just like oh cold start in the city with all of this stuff that it wouldn't be like a ramp up, it would just be like boom, here's all this stuff, blah 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 blah, exposition, exposition, oh look at all this stuff, look at the way the world works and Yeah. Try and write this without doing any exposition without doing any explanation yeah things happen and you react to what's going on around you 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 know there might be loads of things in your world that you want to talk about but you might not come across them in this story well one of the one of the things (laughs) one of the things i'd wanted for dora is sounds uh, cruel but you know um is i wanted her to be disfigured in in some way not to reflect on the character, not to make the character be all like, oh, no, about it, but to have a reason for it later in the story. So I'd had this idea that this Nomad King, this Warlord, whatever, at one point near the, say, should we say, the end, the, the end point, the conflict of, of what's going to happen and when it gets resolved, because Dora isn't towing the line, he can't seem to exert the same influence over her because, again, of what's happened to her previous to this and the way her mind is sort of the state it's in he takes her hand and he doesn't just sort of like he doesn't cut it off or anything like that he literally he takes her hand intertwines his fingers with hers and just closes his fist and because he has a greater strength of will than her he has more control over the matter that is her that constitutes her and he basically just as if her hand is play-doh or anything he just squeezes his 
fist and ruins her hand. I think that would be really good at the midpoint as well. Yeah. You need to build to this. You know, it could be like a shaming ceremony or something. Mm. Like, and maybe she sees other people in the tribe with crushed hands and maybe she talks to them like, you know, maybe in the second scene of the act. So then we're almost foreshadowing that there's these people and she talks to them and they can't articulate it or something. You know, well, I think they all give the same message like it's not safe or like this is a hard world to live in or something really generic and something that's really like it's no real explanation. It's essentially just fobbing someone off because it's a generic answer that this leader has created which propagates through the minds of these people. Um, so that's why they're willing to accept it. And I imagine this scene where she's in sort of stocks or something um, and it was maybe uh, one of the things I was thinking is that maybe if it's both hands then at some point she can lash out at him and hit him in the chest with her ruined hands and she at one point tells him to give her her hand back and as she hits him in the chest her hand sort of partly goes in and when it comes back out she's got her like her hand is whole again Mm. Um, but she only manages to do it for like one hand that would be almost like one of your climax scenes Mm. so that would be you know your final battle almost maybe having Inego come in at that point, so she's she has kind of done the necessary things she needs for her will. Yeah. Um, and she's done it herself. And then there's almost the moment of this guy kind of looking down in shock, going, how did you do that kind of thing? Yes. And then, so it's almost like she might have defeated him. Mm-hmm. And she's not just being rescued, you know, as you say, by the knight in shining armour. She is almost at the point where she's got enough will and the strength to do it. But this is where Inego comes in and he has to witness it as well. So he can go, right, you're definitely the person I'm seeking or something. Yeah. Like you could, could, like, could have it that he's been watching her. He's been watching this whole thing go down um, and sort of waiting to see what actually happened. But yeah, that was essentially like you see, you get a hint of the weird shit that's that's possible in this world. And also you start to, and you know, maybe the astute reader would start to understand that a lot of it is about willpower and a lot of about, a lot of it is about projecting your wants and so forth onto this reality. And, you know, to a degree, it allows you to have those things and act those things out if you have a strong enough will. Because it's almost like a portal fantasy where you've got a kind of fish out of water person in a weird world like this might actually work best to write it from a type first person perspective so you're you're literally in dora's head and going through as she's going through it and seeing what she's seen and all this stuff's really weird and she's trying to make sense stuff and you can have her thoughts about why is it doing this or you know your character's almost a stand-in for the reader so dora doesn't understand the world reader doesn't understand the world and and you're kind of there trying to make sense of it which is where you can get some good misdirections in and good misunderstandings Mm -hmm. because you're going from her assumptions and it's obvious that it's her assumptions and not just a kind of third person more of a yeah it's not just like a ooh, what's this said the writer but more of a like like you're empathizing with the main character in that you're both sort of lost in what the hell's going on yeah, you can have a drawn to the little world building touches, but I mean, try and not bombard too many of them at once and not kind of relish in them. Like, whenever you're doing world building and where, whenever you're doing exposition, you need to try and have it do double duty. So it needs to be in service of the story and be 
as part of the action that leads to something and not just a list of things and a list of histories or whatever. Well, it's almost so. like the, the facts, should we say, or they're not going to be facts, but should we say observations or incidents? Yeah. They're not, the, the story isn't going to be written around them. Like mm-hmm. they are going to, they will spring from the experience of the main character. So uh, again, I don't, as much as I like the world I've built, I don't want it to just be, oh, look at this cool thing that I thought up. Cause it's really obvious when, when authors do that, I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was, um, I think it's called something like the Malazian Book of the Dead, the fantasy series. I started to read and that was, there was too much of that. They love their world too much. They love their magic system too much. And yeah. Just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get you. I know what you mean. You know the magician series, like the Rift War stuff, like Darkness yeah. at Sethanon and stuff like that. Like I, I always felt that that was a great example of a really, really interesting magical system that was not just exposition dumped constantly throughout everything. Yeah, um, done well. And like yeah. Name of the Wind as well. Don't know if you've ever read. No, I didn't read that. Oh, Ross, read that. It's like <laughs> one of the best fantasy novels ever. Uh, yeah, Name Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, really good. And it's got like two magic systems. It's got like more of a mystical one and one that is more of a, um, like a mathematical one, which is, and they kind of both play off each other. Which is really That's cool. cool. Robin Hobb as well. If you've, have you read any of her stuff like the Farseer? No, I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. Just read them. They're great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think you could actually, I think you should read Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb, which is the first in the Farseer trilogy. Yeah. Because she deals with world building and this kind of first person thing really, really well. And magic as well, because there's different types of magic systems in that. There's like one called the wit, which is where he can bond with animals and things like that. And then there's one called the skill, which is almost like you're in this kind of spirit stream. And so there's a lot of really cool magic. There's a lot of really interesting world building. And it's done from this first person perspective. So even if you don't read it all, just, you know, read the first chapter and just see how it's done because it's, it's really effective. And I think that could be a really good kind of almost like a style guide for you. Yeah. I'll have a look. Hmm. Robin so, Hobb. Yeah. Robin Hobb. Oh, yeah. I am aware of her. I've, I've seen that she, she has written books and I have seen their covers and thought, huh, maybe one day I'll read those. So it looks like I've got a good reason to actually start reading them now. Maybe, maybe do the audio book just cause it, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> time is a, time is a commodity. Um, so what I would suggest then now is use the save the cat and look at your beat sheet. You know that your second act is going to be all about the fun and games bit within that tribe thing. You know that the midpoint is where she's going to have that public shaming and lose her hands. Yeah. Um, you know, your finale is going to be where she's getting her hand back and then the last bit, the resolution is going to be her kind of going within Ago and almost on the hook of we're about to go into the city now. I like it. I'll, I, I feel it's the thing. It's it's one of the things I have to say about this whole process is that like it, it's been it gives me confidence because I have structure. Instead of feeling like these tasks are daunting and like oh my god, I've I've got to go from having no words to having oh, like twenty thousand words. When you when you look at it like that, yeah, my my brain sort of cries a little bit. But yeah, it's it's the build up, learning this stuff from you. This you know, the bit by bit by bit, the like layering it upon its each other and break it like anything, like everybody, like everybody's ever tried to teach me anything in my life has tried to say, it's all about breaking it down into manageable pieces. But my brain has always wanted to just do everything all at once. And I, you know, I've got to learn these good habits. I've got to learn to take my time. You know, yeah. Rome, Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. Go from 
scene one, watch your opening scene. You know what that's going to be. She's waking up in the underworld. Where are we ending? So basically, you're going to be going backwards, <laughs> right? So watch your ending, and then you'll get all your causal links better yeah. than... It's weird. It's like if you work backwards, you get to think about cool causes that you might not necessarily have thought of that will lead you to this. So scene one, got that. Scene 20 or 24 or whatever. This is, you know, she's almost going to be at the edge of the city with an ego and him going, this is going to get real now. <laughs> yeah. If you, you know, what you think you've seen before, this is nothing. And then you've got a hook for the next bit. Yeah. And then, yeah, so working backwards, working backwards. You know your midpoint. You can write what your midpoint's going to be and almost building around these different beats. You don't have to do it in the order, and it's almost better not to and have this kind of different kind of progression. And as long as it goes back to your opening scene, it's all good. Mm. And you've got your midpoint, which you know, which is that big moment where she is being publicly shamed and got all that cool stuff. I will <laughs> leave you with that. Um, how does that sound? Do that, that? Sounds, that sounds good. It sounds very doable. It sounds, it sounds like I'm looking forward to doing it. Excellent. So do that. 20 scenes, 24, whatever you want, you know. If you think you need an extra scene here and there, it doesn't matter. Just add them. Try and stick to the Save the Cat structure if you can. Once you get kind of near the end and the resolution-y bits, you are going to be leaving it open for another story, so you're not going to have that closure that you would with a full single arc, but you are going to be having a story that's finished, basically. You're going to be having it about her joining this warlord, things going well, things going wrong, and then her having to escape. That's kind of the main thing. So if you're enjoying this show, please do share it with a friend. We've got a Facebook group. Search for Stop Booking Around. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at JL Cronshaw. And if you want to email the show, it's John at JohnCronshaw.com. That's J-O-N-C-R-O-N-S-H-A-W. So until next time, cheerio. Bye. Bye.